0: Let's take our Bibles. Um, We're going to study two passages today, so let's start in Luke chapter 1. During Christmas, we are um, studying Emmanuel, God with us, and our focus, as we established last week, are on two truths. First of all, this amazing reality that God has come in flesh, that Jesus has intervened in human history to rescue us and to deliver us from our sin and to offer a complete Redemption, complete forgiveness, which we just celebrated at the table—that—that um, that that's a truth. That that's not just some story. It's not some myth. It's historical and it's real. And Jesus did what he said he was going to do. And then, second, our goal—and this is kind of the uh, the foundational goal for our next couple studies—is why Jesus did this. What well, compelled him to come here? How we know and we can hear? Well, he loves us and he's merciful. We know those things, but but let's really dig down into it and discover. What drove him to do this? Now, you remember last week, uh, if you were here, we studied God's pursuit of people. The fact that God desires relationship. That's been true since day one of creation. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. So God desires relationship with us. And the unmistakable proof of that is his grace and mercy is shown through Christ. Now, today we're going to develop the concept of mercy a little bit more uh, and how it changes us. And in a bit, we're going to put our lives on the witness stand. And the Spirit of God, I pray, is going to ask us some very direct questions. And they're not, um, they're not bad. It's, it's a good thing to analyze this. Some very direct questions about what we've done with God's mercy. So I want to encourage you, as always, take some notes this morning. There's a place on the back of the bulletin. Um, we'll write these questions down. And if you don't get all of them as I go through them, Uh, I can send them to you, or we can talk about after the service. But let's talk this morning about the mercy of God from Luke 1. Now, Christ's coming is the ultimate expression of God's mercy. It's the ultimate example of that. And here in this chapter, uh, as we know the Christmas story, Luke 1 and 2, uh, he makes it clear just how amazing this mercy is. Now, the background, as you well know, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, know the background. But let me just give you two minutes on it. Zacharias was a priest, and he was serving in the temple uh, in the first century. And one day, as he's going about his responsibilities, it was his turn to be in the temple. Um, An angel appears to him, and the angel has a life-changing message, not only uh, for Zacharias, but for all of humanity. And Zacharias is told in chapter 1 that Messiah is coming. In fact, it struck me this week that Zacharias gets the message before Mary and Joseph do. So he's the first one to hear it. And as he's standing in the temple, the angel appears to him and he says, The Messiah, who you heard about in Isaiah's prophecy that Isaiah talked about, that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be wonderful, Counselor of the Mighty of God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He says now, what Isaiah talked about, that's happening now. It's all coming to fruition, Zacharias. It's happening, and you're right in the middle of it. But I want you to notice, in verse 17, that the only message Zacharias receives directly from the Lord about Jesus is that his son, John, is going to be the forerunner for him. The angel doesn't say anything about Messiah. He doesn't say anything about a Savior. He doesn't say anything about Jesus. He just says, you're going to have a son, and the son's going to be a forerunner. Doesn't even say the forerunner of Messiah. He's just going to be the forerunner. Now, how does Zacharias know what's going on? Well, Zacharias is a man of Scripture. And he understands fully what's happening. Then you see, when it gets to verse 39, that Mary, who's his wife's cousin, comes and visits with the news that she's been chosen to carry the Savior. But Elizabeth's filled with the Holy Spirit, and she already knew before Mary even got there that the Lord was going to be born to Mary, because when she greets her, she says, um... What's happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? So she already knew before Mary even showed up that Mary was going to have this child. And then when you get to verse 57, you see that John is born to Zacharias and Elizabeth. And that's when Zacharias is again filled with the Holy Spirit. And he gives this amazing word of praise and prophecy that you see. It's written maybe in different type in your in your Bibles. But he gives this amazing word of praise and prophecy about Jesus. Now, we're going to read the whole thing, but we're going to focus primarily on verses 76 to 79. So, start in verse 67. His father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, as I said, Zacharias knew his scripture, and he knows Israel's history very well. He understands that the Lord is doing a profound new work in their midst after centuries of their rebellion and their captivity and their dispersion, and then 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, 400 years of complete silence from heaven. And look at how he gets right to the core of what the Lord's doing. Look especially, and this is kind of nerdy English here, but look especially at the verbs. The Lord, he says, has visited us, and he's accomplished redemption. Even though Jesus hasn't been born yet, even though there's no little baby in the manger in Bethlehem, he knows that the plan of God's already in place, and that God is going to be sending Jesus to be the Savior and the Redeemer. What he doesn't know yet is that God's not only going to offer salvation and redemption to Israel, but he's going to offer it to the Gentiles too. And the Gentiles are going to respond in bigger numbers, actually, than the Jews. That's the wideness of God's mercy. Salvation's not for some. Salvation's not for a few. Salvation is offered to all. Remember, the angel said in Luke, this is good news of great joy for, tell me, all people. Because Christ came for all, he died for all, he bared the sins of the world, he defeated death by rising from the grave, so that salvation is offered to all people, because God is not willing that any should perish, but that, tell me again, all should come to repentance. So it's not a select few. Oh, well, God, uh, Jesus only came to redeem few. No, Jesus came to redeem everybody, but not everybody is going to respond. Not everybody's going to trust. That's only possible. Salvation's only possible if it's for everybody. Now you look at verse 69, and Zacharias talks about God's salvation. He references the Lord's deliverance of Israel from their enemies in the past and how God kept his covenant with Abraham, who was the father of the nation, by showing mercy to him. And again, his scope, while it's correct, is more narrow. But there's a spiritual parallel there to what's happening now that Jesus is coming. Now Jesus is offering salvation from the real enemy. Not the Philistines, not the Amorites, not the Edomites. He's offering salvation. Salvation from the real enemy who's the devil. And if you look back at verse 71, he's the one, he's the enemy who hates us. And God is showing mercy to us and rescuing us from the enemy's hand so we can be free and we can be redeemed and we can be without fear of the one who tries to keep us from heaven. That's the profusion of God's mercy. God's mercy is profuse. It pours out. There's a profligation of His mercy that, that He just puts out for everybody. It's thorough and it's complete and it's absolutely sufficient. As we said earlier, there's nothing lacking. It is full salvation and no more sacrifice needs to be made. It's all done. But there's only one way you can experience it not by coming to church not by saying and doing the right things, not by living a certain way. We can only overcome the extent of our sin because we've been completely corrupted and we have no hope. We can only overcome that guilt by trusting in Christ. It's the only way. And we need to get that so ingrained into our hearts and we need to believe it again and again and again because it drives everything we do. And we need to tell people, look, I'm glad you're a wonderful person and you're doing the right things, but you have no hope without Christ. It's only when you trust him, it's only when you surrender yourself to him that God will redeem you. Now that's what got Zacharias so stirred up and excited. And he shows it in this main passage. If you look back at verse seventy-eight, that's or verse seventy-six, that's where he, he starts to get really excited. And what struck me, and I've, I've studied this passage many times and preached it, and I'm not bragging when I say that. I'm just it's familiar. But as scripture does, every time you come to it, there's something fresh. And what struck me here is that after his son has been born, and and let's give background. This is the son they have literally waited for all their lives this is the son who was a miracle gift from god literally this is the one the son who's going to have a, a, a such a profound significant role in human history as the forerunner and the announcer of the savior of the world Now, this son's been born, and Zacharias hasn't been able to speak for 10 months because he didn't fully believe when the angel first gave the message. So the angel said, fine, you're not going to be able to talk. So for 10 months, Zacharias hasn't been able to utter the word. And now, as his mouth opens, and the son's been born, he's holding him in his arms, what do you think the first thing he says is? He talks about God's mercy. You'd think that a dad, especially an older one, wouldn't be able to stop. Look at this beautiful child. Have you seen my kid? Look at this. Look at that. Look at that son. You don't have a son like that, Fred. Look at that. Look at my son. Instead, he just talks about the mercy of God because he knows something bigger is going on. The Lord is intervening Emmanuel is coming to seek and to save that which is lost, and that's all of us. And Zacharias knows that, and he says, listen, this is an important moment in history. So as he holds his son, he begins to praise God, and he focuses on the role that John, his son, will have in announcing this Savior. And as I read these verses over and over again, I was struck by the tenderness in his words. I've always viewed this passage starting in whatever it is. What is it, verse 67? I've always viewed it as kind of Zacharias kind of lifting his bow. Praise you, Lord. I've, I've always pictured it that way. But I got a new perspective that maybe he didn't. Maybe he looked down at his son and said, you'll go before the Lord. And you'll prepare his ways and you'll give people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. And then look at that next phrase. This is This the heart of our study. Because of the tender mercy of God. Oh, that's such a wonderful phrase. If you write your Bible, underline that. I, I want us to understand it fully because it's very memorable. The word tender here is the Greek word splangnon. Everybody say splangnon. Good. That's a good word for today, right? It's the origin of the word for spleen. It means your intestines, your, your guts. Figuratively, it means the seat of affection, your heart. What, what drives you? What makes you you? Your, your guts. Just who you are. The other word, mercy, is the Greek word eleos. It means kindness or goodwill toward, listen, the miserable and the afflicted joined with a desire to help them. It's the mercy and clemency of God in providing an offering to man salvation through Christ. Now, Clemency, I thought, that's a good word. I've used it before. Not quite sure exactly what it means. I know it means mercy in some way. But listen to the definition of clemency. It means compassionate mercy that refrains from punishing even when justice demands it. And there's nobody that's more holy or more deserving of justice than the Lord. But this is the depth of God's mercy that the righteous one who is completely justifiable in judging us and holding us accountable for our sin not only offers us clemency, but he is the one who takes the blame. He is the one who bears the sin. He is the one who sacrifices himself to free us. And he is the one who pays the price so we can be forgiven And free forever. That's the Spangla non Elios of God. Spangla non Elios. It means the gracious mercy. The clemency of God. That he is just in judging. He is just in holding us accountable. But instead he offers us forgiveness and redemption. And he's the one that makes it happen. And one more thing. He did this while we were sinners. He didn't wait for us to cry out for him because we weren't going to. He didn't wait for us to seek him because we weren't going to. That's why the timing of the coming of Jesus is not Coincidental because the Old Testament is a chronic picture of of the sin of man, of man's selfishness and stubborn rejection of God from Adam and Eve ruining their friendship to the people rebelling where God has to destroy the earth to the arrogance of the Tower of Babel to, to the stubbornness and disobedience of the Jews in the desert to the point that they lacked faith and pursued other gods and God had to take them into captivity. Solomon's carelessness with the blessing of God. Israel broken, scattered, divided, spread out until this moment when the nation still isn't restored, where the nation's still in other parts of the world, and Zacharias is just going in to do his job. God hasn't spoken for 400 years, and all of a sudden an angel comes and says, we got a plan. All this is a picture of, of man and his sin, and the consequences of spiritual rebellion. And what's even more amazing at this point, when the angel comes to Zacharias, is man's silence is deafening. People aren't holding prayer meetings. They're not coming to the temple and saying, oh God, speak to us. It's been four centuries. Why aren't you talking? Nobody at this point cares. And even when Jesus came and proved he was God in every possible way, people still rejected him and still opposed him and still refused to trust in him. But you know what? That didn't stop God. He's still going to pour out his mercy. Oh, praise his name. He's so good to us. You know, if someone abuses us and takes advantage of us and treats us horribly over and over and over and over again, the last thing we want to do is show them mercy, right? last thing we want to do is is show grace to them. Think of a couple people right now, even though it may put a bad taste in your mouth and you may be mad at me for bringing it up. Come on, you have a couple names in your mind of people that you would not cross the street to say hi to, let alone forgive them without you asking, without them asking. Let alone show them mercy. Let alone sacrifice your life in their place but this is the amazing reality of God's mercy his mercy is wide it's to all people and it's profuse it's abundantly sufficient to save and it's tender that spanglinon Elios the clemency that refrains from punishment even though punishment is deserved and it's deep it frees us completely now Knowing that that's what the Lord has done, that he's shown us his tender mercy, and he's the one who offers it through his own sacrifice, here's the the part where we have to ask ourselves, how then does that change the way we live? And don't just go past the question because it's time to be done, and you're tired, and it's snowing outside. No, stop and settle that in your heart and mind. What do we do with God's tender mercy and how does it change how we live? Because the fact that he did this should change everything in our lives. So let's ask some evaluation questions this morning as we think about Jesus being humble and about condescending and laying aside his rights to come and be born as a baby and then being mistreated, misunderstood, opposed, mocked, put on a cross by his creation, spit on, tortured, ridiculed while he's bearing my sins and your sins and he's doing with joy. See, I think it's good To see ourselves as in a courtroom. Defending how we live. Are we living for the Lord? Or are we living for ourselves? So the Spirit's going to ask us some questions here. He's the prosecuting attorney. But he's also the defense attorney. You ever think about that? The Holy Spirit is the prosecuting attorney. He's asking us questions to stir our hearts to see the richness of God's mercy. But he's also the defense attorney because he's offering us salvation. So, four questions. Number one, when you think about Emmanuel and the tender mercy of God, how does it change your convictions? When you think about what Christ has done, how does it change your convictions? And let me ask the questions that an attorney would ask. Can you seriously justify beliefs that are centered on you Instead of on the Lord. Can you argue that your way. And my way. Is better than obeying God's word. Which would be easier to defend. In a court of law. Let alone at his judgment seat. Our opinions and preferences. Or his law. Written on our hearts. And is there any way. That we can say we're maturing spiritually, listen now, without being grounded in His word and holding every decision by the standard of biblical conviction. And I mean every decision. Everything we do, everything we say, every attitude that we hold— Is it held up against the word of God? And we say, before I do that, I need to make sure that the Bible approves of that. Is that how we live our lives? Because that's what drives our convictions. And are our convictions driven by the fact that we've met Emmanuel? Number two, how does Emmanuel change your perspective about future and eternity? How does Emmanuel change your perspective about the future and about eternity? Can we defend an earthly, materialistic, live-for-now approach to life in any way, knowing what it leads to? Can we look at the example, an example, an example of people in the Bible people who didn't take eternity into account, people who lived for themselves, people who pursued the things of the world, can we look at those people and make a strong case that that's the best way to live? Because if we're living that way, we're saying that's the right way to go. We're not stupid. We know what's going on. So so we're making the choice that that is preferable over following the Lord. And in another category that falls under this, how do we defend worry and fear and anxiety and lack of prayer when we know the full sufficiency of the mercy of God? How do we do that? So the first question is, how does meeting Emmanuel affect our convictions? Second, how does it affect our perspective about the future and eternity? Third, how does Emmanuel change your attitude and your mindset? Meeting Christ, knowing Christ, living for Christ, having the Spirit indwell us. Is it possible, then, to be frustrated and bitter about our lives and what the Lord's allowed, and we all deal with that? Is it possible to stay bitter and frustrated most of which is, is largely due to our choices rather than God's direct hand. Is, is it right for us to then to be bitter and frustrated and even angry with God when all we deserve is misery and death? Is it, can we maintain that posture? Can we keep a sour spirit? Can we keep discontentment in our heart when he's radically changed our lives? Is that possible? Question four, last one. How does Emmanuel change your mercy and love toward others? How does Emmanuel change your mercy and love toward others? When life is unfair and people treat you horribly, and we've all been through that, can we then defend an isolationist approach? Well, fine, everybody hurts me, so I'll just separate from all of it. Or even worse, can we defend an aggressive, unmerciful attitude toward people that contradicts what Christ did for us? Knowing how much God loves us, and we've talked about it all morning, we've sung about it, we've celebrated at the table, we know at this point, I don't know how you can come to this service and not know the love of Christ. So now that we know about it, now that he's proved it, how do we justify then a lack of love, a lack of forgiveness, holding grudges, and being critical? I was convicted about this this week, really hard. I was in the hospital with the Strattons on Thursday, and Bill was laying there unconscious with the breathing tube, and things were kind of still up in the air. We didn't know what was going to happen when he regained consciousness. The family was talking about what a wonderful person he was and how much he cares about people. And they said, you know, when he wakes up, the first words he's going to do, is to look at the nurse and say, do you know Jesus? And somebody said, I forget, it was one of the children said, you know, he just loves people, and he taught us not to be critical of anybody, but just to love them. And right there, standing in the hospital room in CICU in St. Luke's, the Holy Spirit convicted me. Of all the times I've had a critical spirit, all the times I didn't show love to other people, all the times I've had a comment or a little side thing about somebody. What's my defense to the Lord? He offered me mercy, even though I've offended him how many times? Even though I've sinned against him more than I can possibly admit, and yet he still shows me love and mercy. Now, the translation of that is, now show love and mercy to others. As I've forgiven you, so forgive others. So what's my excuse? How does meeting Emmanuel change your love and mercy to another? See, we can't just accept the eternal gift of God's mercy and think that transformation only applies to eternity. We can't say, Oh, God, I'm so glad you saved me. Christ, thank you for saving me. I'm so, I'm, I'm redeemed. I'm one of heaven's. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. Now, I know that'll take place, and I know I'll be perfect and, and transformed when I get there. So I'm just going to kind of take it easy until, until that happens, and I'm going to kind of do my own thing and, 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 and whatever, because I'm covered by God's mercy. And pastor said that I can't lose my salvation, so I'm going to live however I want. The transformation that takes place at salvation means that new life begins now, and he has freed us and equipped us to live that way. So now it's a matter of will. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 9 just for a moment because I want us to see, real quick, and then we'll pray, how Christ's work changes us. Hebrews chapter 9. Now, we're not going to do this passage justice because this is just an unbelievable chapter of Scripture. It's incredibly deep. It talks about the first covenant with Israel and it talks about the tabernacle. Remember, this is written to the Jews. And it talks about how sacrifice worked in the Old Testament. If you look at the first part, we're not going to read it. The Spirit details how in the tabernacle there was the holy place and then there was the holy of holies. The Holy of Holies is where the high priest could only enter one day a year during the Day of Atonement, and he would go into the Holy of Holies, and the Ark of the Covenant was there, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant were two cherubim that formed the mercy seat. And the priest would take the blood of a pure animal, and he would take it in there with great trepidation, because the presence of God was there, and he would walk in, and he would spread the uh, the blood of the spotless lamb, On the mercy seat of God as a payment, verse 7, look at it. For the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Now, that phrase doesn't mean that the people were clueless. I didn't know what I was doing. No, it means they were purposely unwise. Purposely irresponsible. Purposely foolish to disobey. So there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be a payment for the sin. But the problem with this sacrifice in the Old Testament, if you look at verse 9 is that it was imperfect. It was an animal's blood, even though the animal was spotless, without blemish. God was very specific about that. But it was still the blood of an animal. And the writer of Hebrews says, look, that was great, but it didn't make the worshiper pure. It didn't make the worshiper perfect in in conscience. That's why every year, we had to go back and do it again. And you notice in verse 10, It says this only related to the sins of behavior. It didn't deal with the full reformation of the heart. But then look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That's to say not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves. Oh, this is great. But through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctifies for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve The living God. Somebody say amen. Oh, that's so good. Christ is the perfect tabernacle. Not a tabernacle made with hands. Not the presence of God filling a fabric tent. Now the presence of God is filling a human tent. It's filling an earthly body. And he doesn't enter the holy of holies by the blood of a lamb. He is the lamb. It's his blood. And he goes in and says, all right, this is it. This payment is permanent. This payment is eternal. We don't have to keep doing this once a year because I'm making the final payment. And the Spirit says, how much greater, how much greater is his blood than the blood of some animal? But it's that last sentence in verse 14 that should get our attention. Because listen, this is the key to how we're to now live. Look at it. The blood of Christ cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, when we receive Christ's offer of full salvation, full pardon, and full forgiveness... Not only does he erase the record of our sin, we talk about it all the time. There's no record as far as the east is from the west, we're cleansed. So, not only does he erase the record, but here's the thing that applies to our daily lives he also erases the dead works from our conscience. Oh, now here's where conviction comes in. That means he did two things that means he's cleansed our mind the word means to purge and purify from wickedness so no longer are we controlled by sin no longer are we controlled by what's in our mind that that actually anytime we allow sin now to enter in anytime we bring it into our eyes and bring it into our heart now that actually becomes offensive to us because it prevents us from maturing we can't say, well, Paul, you don't know how I grew up. And you don't know the influences around me. You don't know the people that I'm around. Or you don't know my family. Oh, my word. Well, no, I don't know your family. I don't know the people you work with. But I do know that if you're saved, God's cleansed your mind. And God's cleansed my mind. And I don't have any excuse to say, well, I'm sorry. I've just got to look at that. I've got to take that into my heart. Because, you know what, it's there. And a couple clicks, it was there. And, and I just, you know, I, I'm weak. No, you're not. You're cleansed fully. You're cleansed fully. He has removed from your conscience the dead works. And as he removes it, here's the better part, he fills that space with his spirit. And his spirit sanctifies and renews us so we're enabled to live as clean vessels that he has made us to be. So out with the old, out with the junk, out with the dirtiness, out with the wicked conscience, out with the dead works. They don't apply anymore. They don't control you anymore. You're not under bondage anymore because Christ has freed you. Now he fills you with the spirit and he says you're cleansed and you're sanctified and you're pure. Keep this place clean. Keep it clean. Stop bringing junk back in here. Now, why is that important for us to hear it? Primarily, it's because we don't always live in the power of his sanctification. We fall back into sin, not because Christ hasn't done enough, but because we don't appreciate it enough, and because we don't defend what he's done. I went down to Harvest Bible Chapel a couple years ago. I think it was before the church even started, if I remember right. Some of us went down there and Pastor McDonald was speaking about redemption and about sacrifice, and he brought out a little lamb, beautiful little animal, and he had a big old knife. And we're sitting there going, he might just do it. How many lambs did they have back there? Is he going to kill this one? He he presented it so clearly and so convincingly that honestly I was sitting there going, I cannot look at this because he's going to cut the throat of that little lamb, and that blood's going to pour out on the stage. How differently would we view sin if we had to watch the priest walk into the tabernacle carrying a bowl of blood of a little lamb that had just been sacrificed for our sin? How much would that change our perspective? See, God's mercy is so easy in this day and age. God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Christ died for your sins. Just prayer, prayer and you're good. That's the essence of Christianity 2016. That table represents a sacrifice that's incomprehensible. And if we had to actually watch the blood be spilled, it would change us. Now, how much more amazing and humbling is the sacrifice of Christ that he came as a helpless little baby, Emmanuel, God in flesh, For the express purpose, I'm done, of being sacrificed for your sin and for my sin. And by doing that, he says, I will cleanse you and I will change you forever. Listen, if you've never trusted in Christ as Savior, I want to tell you, the prosecution has an open and shut case against you. But Jesus comes and he says, I will pay the penalty. I will take your place and I will free you from sin and I've got to ask you and I mean this in all love, why would you possibly reject that? Why would you possibly say no to that? Because he will free you forever and if you want to know about that you want to pray about that you want to talk somebody about it maybe you've been in church for 30 years and honestly as you're listening this morning the holy spirit's saying you know what you've never really given your life to christ maybe that's the case. i don't know but i'm telling you we'll be here after the service to talk to you don't leave don't go out in the snow you don't know if you're going to have an accident today don't leave without making sure And listen, those of us that have received God's mercy, which has been profusely poured out for us, we need to be much more fierce. Listen now, I'm done. We need to be much more fierce in defending his sanctification and walking in it. We should be living in the tremendous power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Aren't you glad for the mercy of God this morning? Aren't you glad God's faith? Let's let's praise him. Let's praise him.